Hi, I'm Dr. Shiloh. And I'm Dr. Scott. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. Today, this bonus episode is on the forensic psych topic of intimate partner violence. All right. Happy, very rare fifth Wednesday of the month, everyone. Uh, we have a bonus episode for you today, which is essentially a wonderful conversation that we had with our really good friend and esteemed content creator, Eric Carter Land. Uh, and it, this first aired on his victim advocacy podcast entitled True Consequences back in 2021. Yeah. years ago. Yeah, <laughs> I know. So Eric, if you don't know his story, he was inspired to start his own show to bring awareness to cases from the southwestern state of New Mexico for families who have not been able to gain justice for their missing or murdered loved ones. That passion came from a place Eric knows all too well. In season two of his show, he began telling the story of the murder of his baby brother, Jacob Jeremiah Landine. Jacob was a bright and happy baby boy who in 1987 was so terribly abused by his mother's then boyfriend that it eventually led to his death one night while in that man's care. That man was never charged or prosecuted, and Eric has made it his life's mission to bring justice to Jacob, his family, and the state of New Mexico, who has repeatedly failed, abused children in similar ways over the years. So folks, we aren't going to bury the lead here because Eric has an update in the pursuit of justice for Jacob, and we wanted to read Eric's statement before getting into the conversation with him that we had back in 2021. So we're going to be sharing this statement from Eric with you right now. Here it goes. So Eric says, hi, first and foremost, I want to thank you for caring about justice for Jacob. I want to thank all the creators who covered Jacob's case. I also want to thank all the listeners for your engagement in the justice for Jacob movement. Your efforts helped us get the case to the point where it currently is. I have not been able to provide updates for a long time, but I want to back up a bit to bring you up to speed on what has been happening. Three years ago, I asked for help calling and emailing the district attorney in Socorro County, New Mexico, and you all showed up. Calls, emails, and letters poured in from around the world. We initially planned to do this for 10 days, and the DA responded just two days later. He asked that the attorney general take the case because he did not have the resources or time to deal with the calls and emails. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for showing up for us. The AG took the file and started an investigation. Unfortunately, there was an election halfway through the last three years, which stalled the case. In December, the AG's office reached out to my mom and I and asked for a meeting. We were excited because we believed that the AG would not bring us in if it was bad news. I wish that happened. Unfortunately, we did not receive the news we were hoping for. We were told by the prosecutors that through their investigation, they were not able to find sufficient evidence to prosecute. This is not the end of justice for Jacob. We are going to continue pushing for change in New Mexico, even if that change means a change in the attorney general or laws. We will continue to do everything in our power to make sure that no New Mexican family has to go through what we have had to go through. Once again, thank you for your support and love. It has carried us through these last few years. We may be reaching out again to ask for help from you. So stay tuned as we take a step back and start planning our next steps. Thank you again for amplifying Jacob's voice. We cannot thank you enough. So Dr. Shiloh and I are enormous professional and personal fans of Eric. And just, there aren't words to describe what a stand-up cool guy he yep. is. We just really <laughs> like him. He's done 
unbelievable work over and over on his award-winning podcast. So please check out True Consequences, as well as his new podcast with Charlie from Crime Lines called Crime Lines and Consequences. They're both great shows, and this new podcast is going to be like a meeting of great minds. So please check it out. <laughs> yes, Eric is all of that and above. Just a great human, really feels like family at this point. Eric, our hearts are with you and your mom. So for everyone else, please enjoy this conversation. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Eagle Federal Credit Union. Stranded at the roadside is not where you want to be. That's why you pay extra for roadside assistance coverage. But what if you didn't have to pay extra for it? U.S. Eagle Perks Checking comes with roadside assistance coverage 24-7 when you need it. Learn more at gettheperks.org. Checking that gives you more because people mean more at U.S. Eagle. Terms and conditions apply. See U.S. Eagle for details. Federally insured by NCUA. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to a extra special live stream of True Consequences podcast. I am going to be joined here in a moment by Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott from the amazing LA Not So Confidential podcast. If you are not listening, what are you doing with your life? Go subscribe right now. Um, we're going to be talking about a very difficult conversation, a very difficult subject, something that I'm very passionate about, but I'm hoping that you will find it beneficial and I'm hoping that it will give you some kind of uh, knowledge and information that will be helpful. Um, before I bring everybody on, I wanna thank my sponsor for today, which is US Eagle Federal Credit Union. Um, go ahead and check them out. And if you want, you can download the app and get all those awesome perks that they talked about on uh, gettheperks.org. All right, so I'm going to bring Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh here on and make sure that you comment and let us know that you're watching so we can, uh, we can acknowledge you. All right, here we go. Hello, welcome. Hi, Hi. Eric. How are you guys doing? Good. 
Good. Yeah. Awesome. Hello from sunny LA. <laughs> Hello from sunny Albuquerque. It's sunny here too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I want to take a second before we jump into this and have you introduce yourselves and I will let you guys fight over who goes first. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, why don't you go first? So, hey, I'm uh, Dr. Scott. I'm a clinical, I'm licensed in California as a clinical psychologist. I am trained as a forensic psychologist and I work uh, in Southern California in a co-responder model uh, with law enforcement to um, address the needs of the chronically mentally ill and as well as uh, mitigate risk for a number of factors. Um, I have a podcast with my best friend that I did a uh, intern internship with uh, over a decade ago, which I can't believe all this time has passed. But Dr. Shiloh and I met um, at our internships working in a forensic setting uh, with some very uh, a very challenging population. It was a great experience. Um, we've had a, a real friendship. Our families hang together. And, and a few years ago, she came up with this crazy idea. And here we are with our own show. So <laughs> I came from, a, we both came from different backgrounds too. So yeah. we, we, uh, uh, she'll tell you more about her background. I was in entertainment for many years, first as a performer, then as a, a line producer and a talent manager representative and casting director. And then I hit midlife and decided I wanted a, a big change and dove into grad school. So that's my story. <laughs> I am also a psychologist here in California. I am forensic psychology by trade, uh, straight out of grad school. I started working with offenders getting out of prison and quickly built uh, my expertise in the area of high-risk sex offenders. So that's where I did the majority of my career so far. Um, did that for about a decade straight. I still do a little bit of that on the side, but I... And my, my full day job now is a law enforcement psychologist and I work with or in the police department. I'm employed by the police department to provide clinical services and training and um, essentially you know, research whatever they need. And then I'm also part of the crisis negotiation team for the department. So, um, yeah, Scott, and I, my background is in law enforcement. So I was a police officer before I was a psychologist. So, yes, we have very different backgrounds, which we complement each other <laughs> really well with that. Um, but yeah, we, we just had, I, I had this idea of starting the show because I didn't feel like there was really anyone who was a professional working in the field, talking about the psychological concepts that intersect with true crime. And so I bounced it off of him and said, hey, do you think we could kind of fill that void? Let's see how it goes. And really, it, it, it was and still is just a way for us to kind of get outside of our jobs, dive into things that we just find really curious. It's a beautiful excuse to say like, hey, I'm going to, you know, dive into this and research it. And uh, here we are, you know, putting out episodes every other week. That's about all we can manage with our time. Um, and just, you know, happy to come on and talk with other people that are doing wonderful work, of course, like you, Eric. So thank you so much for having us on. Uh, I just want to thank you both for, for taking the time to, to be on the show. Um, 
it's something I've been looking forward to for several months now. I think I was harassing Dr. Shiloh at the end of last year, um, begging her to come on and, and begging both of you to come on because I, I really am interested in your perspective, uh, specifically related to my brother's case and, and the abuse that my mom and I uh, experienced through that whole process. This was supposed to be the end of the 10 days of Jacob campaign, but I had to suspend it early uh, because it was so effective that uh, I got a response from the DA in, in half the time in five days. So it's still it's still uh, the 34th anniversary of Jacob's death today. Uh, it's It's been pretty, pretty emotional. Yeah, but um, I, I have hope for the first time in a very long time. And that feels good. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a wonderful gift to be able to say today. And it, it, it's really the power of what you're doing and your audience and how much they do just truly, truly care that, you know, it's, it's hard to pick up a phone and call a DA's office. You know, it's very easy to sign a petition. Um, uh, but, you know, if you just take it up that next step where you're putting a voice, you're putting humanity behind it that they have to respond. So mm -hmm. I hope nothing but the best comes from it. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. So uh, it, it's been an interesting few months for Jacob's case. And um, yeah, I've been on this kind of tour of as many podcasts and YouTubers and anybody that will, will allow me to tell Jacob's story. And so I do want to say thank you to everybody who has taken the time to lend their platform to me um, and to Jacob and to my mom, because it, it has helped tremendously. And, and without that pressure and without uh, the awareness that has come out of that, it wouldn't, I wouldn't be here, you know, talking about the DA responding to me. So I, I have to acknowledge that. And, and I have to acknowledge both of you as well for, for taking the time to, to talk through this. So um, you both listened to, to Jacob's story. Uh, you listened to my mom's interview, I think. And I gave you, I gave you the case file as well. I, I'm curious if you have any opening thoughts about the case, about the story, about anything before we get into some of the questions that I might have. I, go ahead, I guess I, I do, but go ahead. I want to hear what you have to say. Well, what I was going to start with, and we're probably Shiloh and I have gotten to the point now where we're finishing other, each other's sentences, um, which is really crazy, but it's so true. Uh, one of the things I want to start with is that I am so happy uh, that there's some movement and that your campaign, you know, resulted in there being an opening where there was no opening before. So that being said, we're going to be really careful today about anything and everything that we observe, because we do not want to muddy the waters. And this is something that, that Shiloh and I are very clear about. So what I'll be doing is Rather, what I would feel more comfortable in protection of you and your family and the purpose of this is to comment on what we understand as the described behaviors so that we can provide psychoeducation and understanding for what could have happened in a situation like that and what kind of perpetrator does this. But just want to be very clear, we don't want to muddy the waters or obfuscate anything within this moving forward. So as, you know, I was doing my research on this in the last week or so, and then just kind of today before we got started in the hour or so um, prior to us going live, I was really wanted to sit back and kind of think, okay, if, 
if this was a formal psychological assessment or case that I was consulting on, which it's not, and I'll tell you exactly, I mean, for the reasons Scott just said, but also because I feel like I have so little information on the perpetrator. There, There's gold, like wonderful information about the behaviors and the abuse and the uh, psychological tactics that were used. But as somebody that we look at the whole picture when we're doing an evaluation, you know, I found, God, there's so many holes and blanks that I would just love to know about the relationships with his own kids, his work stability, um, you know, previous romantic relationships. That's, there's a lot here, but for the way that Scott and I normally look at these, it's just, it, it, I wish I had more answers about some of this stuff to be able to inform me and back up some of the things we might say when we're talking about perpetrators of this kind. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And, and a lot of that was intentional, you know, um, because I, I, I really did not want to not only not name him, but not let people, cause you know, where I came from, it's a small town. So it, it's not very difficult for, for people to figure out who, who, who he is. And so, uh, a lot of that was intentional. Um, but okay. I'm, I'm totally on board with, with moving beyond, beyond Jacob's story and, and going into some of the behaviors and some of the tactics. It looks like we have a question to look at, uh, and discuss some of the red flags that people should watch out for when, when uh, being faced in a, in a situation like this, where, you know, for example, with, with this perpetrator, the love bombing, the um, kind of identification of somebody in a vulnerable situation. Can, can you speak to some of those things? Oh, I, I think that's, we, that's probably a lot of what we prepared. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and, and red flags, it, you know, we can kind of, I think all through, especially your mom's journey, stick a lot of red flags along the way that because of the type of manipulation that happens, those were not red flags that she was seeing. She might've been feeling them. Um, and she even talks about that, you know, the gut reactions and instincts uh, warning her, but it can be as early on as when you're talking about like the beginning of a relationship and what's happening there. Like what, what sticks out to me is just how, he was there to swoop in the second your parents were split up and being the best friend of her husband, right? So right there is a just a little snapshot of a super interesting dynamic um, and even creating more of a wedge to encourage her to leave. So, I mean, we can go as far back as then to, you know, looking at like the child abuse red flags, the the reactions in Jacob, his fear responses, um, some of those things. So it's just, I, I see a path of red flags. Um, and as you talked about with the other two doctors on the live stream that you did, you guys covered very well why those red flags are so hard to see for women that are in this situation. So I don't want to regurgitate all of that, but um, you know, I, I think they're, they're certainly... <laughs> is a lot to, to discuss. I mean, do you want to start with love bombing? Kind of talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to start with that because I think that yeah, I didn't know what that was, of course, in the eighties. I don't think anybody really knew what that was in the eighties. Um, and it wasn't until I became an adult and then looked back at 
the story and look back at that time in our lives that I realized that that's what was happening. And so um, it, it is extremely, and I'm not a professional mental health person. I don't, you know, I don't know a lot about things on that level. I, I understand them because I've experienced them. Um, but I, I feel like it is very disarming when, when somebody's doing that to you, because even if you have doubts about them or their character, it kind of creates this dichotomy in, in, in my mind where I'm like, well, he can't be that bad because these are all the great things that he's doing. Right. Even though I have this feeling that something is off, it doesn't jive with what is happening. Yes. And that, that is a big indicator of knowing that it's not sort of genuine, like courting of a relationship. <laughs> it's that gut feeling like something is not aligning. Um, and I think you're right. You know, we don't, when, when I hear love bombing, I think of cults, like somebody trying to get somebody into a cult. And I think Scott and I actually talked about that at, at length in our cults episode way back when. Um, and I always just pictured it as just like dumping as much, you know, love and gifts and things like that as possible. And then that's it. Like you have them trapped, but it's actually more of a process to where their, their husband, um, some leaders in this field that kind of break it down into a few stages. So it, it definitely, it's, it falls under emotional abuse. I think we can say that. And it's just one of many tactics that's used by uh, perpetrators of intimate partner violence in, in sort of the cycle of violence that we know about. But the first stage is that idealization stage. So there is extreme amounts of doting affection, um, showing a public affection, sort of the things you can see on the outside. But it's it's not just about gift giving and flowers and all of that. It's it's really the psychological game of making a connection with the person. I mean, staring longingly into their eyes, like really like just these moments where they're putting in a lot of effort, these romantic conversations that, you know, usually are revolving around our future together and and, and all of these wonderful things that people want to hear. And what it does is it makes a recipient have those feelings of love at first sight. It, this is too good to be true. Like, oh my gosh, this is my soulmate. Because you, you don't experience this in normal relationships. So it stands out as something that's amazing and seems like it's going to be a great thing when in actuality should be standing out as this actually isn't the proper order of things. Um, so that that happens and then it turns. There's this devaluation stage. And once they have the person, in the, the idealization stage at the beginning, when someone feels that connected to someone else, you tend to open up more, right? So the person starts to learn about them, learn their weaknesses, what are their vulnerabilities? And then they can start using that against them in the devaluation stage. So that that quickly turns into the manipulative tactics where they start the perpetrator starts treating the victim or the recipient as more of a possession or an object at that point. It's like they've won and now, OK, you're mine. Um, and that's when the belittling, the insults, the tearing down of the self-esteem will start. Um, they'll even start to, like, flip the script. So. 
if the person says like, oh, you know, I haven't been the the victim. I haven't been spending time with my girlfriends. Like they're really wanting me to go and hang out. Oh, well, you're so selfish. Like, I, I can't believe that, you know, you're, you're going to take away a day from me rather than like, bye, go have fun. Okay. You deserve it. They flip it um, to where the, the victim starts questioning themselves. And um, it's interesting because the perpetrators are actually incredibly insecure, but that's how they're making their victims feel at some point. Um, and then there's this discard stage, which is interesting because it, it, it usually happens sort of in one of three ways. Either the perpetrator basically finds someone else to latch onto, which kind of sounds like it was happening in your mom's case, right? So they their attention turns to the new shiny new victim um, and they're kind of done with the person that they're with. Uh, and they will, it, it, if there's no benefit to them anymore, they'll drop them and be on to the next thing. Um, there also could be the situation where the victim starts pushing back, like realizes, hey, this is BS. My family and friends are encouraging me and supporting me. And then it's like game over. But sometimes, which is the worst and so manipulative, is that the perpetrator will discard or end the relationship as a ploy because they have every intention on reconnecting. So it's sort of like, hey, I'm going to break up with you, but then I'm going to start this whole thing all over again. So it is much more sinister. I think you nailed it, Eric, than we kind of think of on the surface when we hear love bombing. But never, never the fault of the victim. No. I I wanted to jump in and add something to that really tight uh, definition is, you know, uh, I'm going to touch on this a little bit to answer one of your other questions, but this idea of in the Western world that we've had of romantic love, which is only sort of further driven by, you know, historical poetry and a lot of our literature and every Hallmark movie ever made, um, which isn't necessarily real. It's a bit of a fantasy or a fairy tale. And yes, romance is an important part of a relationship, but you know, one of the, the examples that comes up that's not related to this case clearly, but is a great example is Scott Peterson. And Scott Peterson was a big one for love bombing Lacey and also uh, his his girlfriend on the side with like these huge romantic gestures, like a dozen red roses for her and a dozen white roses for the mother. And, you know, there's something off about that. And just kind of I know looking here in the chat and the comments, the idea of looking for those things, those red flags, that's a red flag. When someone like gives these really over the top gestures that don't really take into consideration, like, I don't even know if this woman likes flowers or this guy likes flowers. Maybe they're allergic. Maybe they hate yeah. red roses. Maybe I it reminds me of something. Right. And <laughs> but like, my husband the, knows that. <laughs> right. Because those are the things that you want to do is you want to get to know the person. So these like grand gestures are almost like, and this is a weird analogy, but let me say, if, if you've heard of the concept of uncanny valley of why we have these really sort of mild to significant uh, revulsion reactions to robotics. So robotics that are too human but but not enough to completely fool you cause us to have this 
innate defensive revulsion response of this is not real. This is potentially a danger to me. So that's a broad example of what can happen in relationships is like your gut is a finely tuned radar if you learn to listen to it. Well, this looks nice, but it feels a little off. But everybody has, a, you know, people coming from a trauma-informed background or a background where they were invalidated by family members or they had a, another abusive relationship and then they feel something is really positive coming from this new potential partner, it's very easy to slip into that. You know, and everybody falls for it. There is no, there is no outline of a victim of domestic violence or interpartner violence. It's like we we are all able to fall for that. So I just wanted to give that that weird example and uh, kind of expand a little bit on some of the the questions. Was there anything else we wanted to cover with love bombing? I mean, it is it's a it's a cult technique as well. Like build yes. them up build them up, break them down, build them up, break them down so that you're yeah. constantly keeping your victim off balance. And there's versions seen in like, um, sort of like gang activity and initiation yes. um, with um, pimps and sex workers. You, you see it in a lot of different areas. Yes. So, so Lane is asking, do you, do you feel that these perpetrators are aware that they are doing like, is this, is this intentional or is it more of like a personality disorder? Both and yes and no. <laughs> so it's that's a great question, Lane. I, Lane, that's a really great question. And it deserves some attention is that, you know, diagnostically, we have to always be really careful. There are some people that are psychopaths. They are just built with a different genetic code, a different brain structure. And then their, their physiology can certainly be informed by their their um, upbringing and their environments. And that will have a lot to do with whether or not it's intentional, but is it really intentional if this is the only way the person knows to survive? Like if, you know, if, if a narcissist or an abuser is acting in this way, what kind, and I'm not justifying any of the violence, any of the manipulation, I'm not justifying it, but it may be the only way that they know to move through the world. So can they be taught differently? Sometimes, I mean, I'm a little wary of just sort of, you know, when I would, if I have to testify in a, in a um, family hearing or something, and I just hear the judge go, okay, you're going to go to anger management for four months. I'm like, really? That anger management is, is like putting a bandaid on a head wound. You're not getting to why this person is doing this, but that's, that would be my response. What car, uh, Shiloh, what do you think? Well, going with that example, anger management might be great for, one perpetrator and totally counterproductive for the other. So if, yes. if one person has, you know, really awful coping skills is in, um, you know, has a, maybe a socioeconomic status that is incredibly stressful and ended up using violence in a relationship because they didn't know how else to handle that situation. Again, not, not, um, you know, excusing it. That person might be able to learn some coping skills, be able to have some more awareness and learn that through therapy and boom, okay, they don't ever perpetrate again. But if you have more of the sinister kind of what we're talking about here, uh, uh, someone with psychopathy traits, um, it, what stands out to me is really like the dark triad with psychopathy and narcissism and Machiavellianism where there's this innate 
um, drive to just manipulate and use people for whatever they're good for, for them. For that, for that secondary planning. gain. Yeah. yeah. So the secondary gain and then secondary gain can be across the board, right? Right. There, that person's going to go to anchor management and learn how to fake all of that Yep. and then come out and keep doing it. So it's, it, it just depends on, especially when we talk about domestic violence, you know, Scott said, there's just, there's not one profile of a victim. There's also not necessarily one profile of a perpetrator, especially when we start breaking down like demographics. Um, it does come down to more environment and then personality. Do you feel that the intimate partner violence, domestic violence, could be potentially symptoms of a bunch of other issues for, for different situations and different people. It sounds like, you know, depending on the perpetrator and, and where they are, it could be a number of factors that are causing that. Oh, absolutely. Behavior. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a great example and I can't even remember the podcast that covers it. And it may be John Ronson from a few years ago about a very famous case in the UK of an individual a guy with a very, very high functioning, successful business person who has full on delusional disorder. He has an erotomanic delusional disorder where he would romance women. He'd been through three major relationships in his life and he would romance women with this love bombing because he wants to, he definitely wants to be in a relationship. But the minute the relationship is secure, his delusional process emerges and he believes that this individual is cheating on him. And so he has hooked up and they interviewed three of the women who had been in relationships with him who were just exhausted by this. It's like, I'm, I'm literally just went to the kitchen to get a cup of tea. And you're saying that I got on my phone to chat with a boyfriend or that I'm at work, but I'm having an affair with someone. So that's an example, an extreme example of somebody who's going to be engaging in coercive control and manipulation because of their own thought process. But going back to what Dr. Shiloh said, a lot of these cases, especially that end up in violence is really that dark triad and the Machiavellian factor of manipulation, because there is an issue with their organicity that they can't feel they don't experience the full range or spectrum or the sort of the, the holistic view of human emotions and experience. So where they do get off or where they do get some sense of fulfillment is that manipulation or the secondary gain of like, Oh, I've got somebody to pay my bills or I've got somebody right. that I can sleep with. So yes, it can come from a, a lot of different sources. Definitely. Sure. Uh, one, one question. So Lisa talks about the fact that, I was being blamed for abusing Jacob. Um, she wants to know if you can talk about the damage that domestic violence causes to other family members, other children in the family. And, and then I would like to add to that. Can you talk about that kind of, I feel like that's a, a pretty consistent thing with somebody who, who is in this situation. Um, and, and like I said, I can't diagnose the perpetrator in this because I, I'm not qualified to. Um, but I, I do see a lot of the hallmarks of that narcissistic type of behavior where, you know, this is kind of anecdotal and a little bit um, probably not evidence-based because I just saw it online somewhere, but it said, if you want to know what a narcissist is doing, look at what they're blaming others for. And so can you talk about some of that? Yeah, I, I, I'm so glad that you framed the question that way, because it's it, when you had given us the points that you wanted to discuss, that was one of the things that was really important to differentiate is 
that, you know, there's a lot of controversy within the mental health community and the recovery community about what constitutes the use of this term and whether or not it's appropriate to use official DSM diagnosis criteria outside the DSM. So like I throw around the term a lot and I'm, I'm guilty of this. Like I'll say narcopath, which is a combination of narcissistic and sociopathic or psychopathic traits, but that's not actually a diagnosis. That's a description of an amalgamation of behaviors. So when we talk about this, it's like um, in narcissistic personality disorder is, you know, a portmanteau of an actual diagnosis and the action verb or noun abuser. So many clinicians these days are concerned that people use a diagnosis to diminish what is actually just straightforward IPV or DV. And that, like we were saying earlier, that could emerge out of a number of different um, sequelae. So that's just important to remember is like, first of all, just on a, like a, uh, like somebody was saying here, the um, Andre, thank you so much for listing Gavin De Becker's book, The Gift of Fear, because that should be required reading for one thing, like Shiloh was given it as a teenager and it, you know, really kind of Very opened her eyes to potential danger. That's really uh, important. And we can toss around these terms because we want to have meaning. We want to know why people do this, right? I mean, we just like, we want to understand human behavior. Why did my best friend become a victim? Why did my mom become a victim? How did I get victimized? And ultimately it doesn't really matter why, because you don't need to understand everything that's going on with the perpetrator. You need to understand what you can do to take care of yourself and so that you can heal. So I just wanted to throw that out as sort of a response, but it, we, we feel like, Oh, if I just know why I'll feel sure. better. And it really doesn't and make any sense. It's not helpful. Actually. The one that the category um, I think that jumps out to me more than kind of sticking with this narrative of narcissism or narcissistic personality disorder is really the antisocial personality traits. And I, I have, I, especially with working with sex offenders, I kind of dubbed them like the equal opportunity criminals, because sometimes it's not even about it, and, and particularly in my lens, when I was looking at sex offenses, it just because they offended against a child didn't mean that they were exclusively attracted to children. It's like, hey, what's around to meet my need right now? And it happened to be a child that time. Um, and so that is that's the gut feeling I'm getting when I listen to your episodes about Jacob's case and going back to you being blamed for it, as well as being a victim. Everybody around him is a victim in one way or multiple ways. And even just what sticks out to me is when your mom says, I saw that there were just like sunflower seeds in the crib, you know? So what is What does that do? That makes you, to me, it conjures up a picture of him, you know, maybe the baby crying and him just standing there being responsible for the baby and just chewing his sunflower seeds and spitting them out spitting on the him. You know, just not even helping, being as cool and calm and collected and cruel at the same time. And so it's it's those little nuggets that I was getting that makes me think this is an equal opportunity offender. He's going to hit. He's going to um, emotionally abuse. It doesn't matter if it's his own children, if it's someone else's children, if it's his um, partner, um, an adult, a child, doesn't matter, all, all over the place, which is, it, 
antisocial personality disorder, you can have some traits of that, and then you can have a full-on diagnosis of it. And then that to the nth degree is what we say when we mean psychopathy, which also is not a diagnosis. It's not official, but there are measurements in which you can measure somebody and say that they rate high on measures of psychopathy. It's, uh, it's, it's, it is a lot. And, and I agree. I agree with you, Dr. Scott, you know, I think the mind, my mind wants to package all of this in a nice, neat box (laughs) that's sealed perfectly. That's a complete, and that's a completely natural response. You want to make sense of it. Yeah. Because it doesn't make sense. Uh, it, it, it is a nightmare and, and, and the effects of it, you know, on my mother and on me and, and on anybody else who, who was in this person's path, you know, they are, they are extensive and they are long lasting, you know, and, and I find myself in situations where something that seems so benign triggers something in my brain. Yeah. And then, and then I have an instant like anxious fight or flight response to it. And it doesn't make sense in the moment to me. You know, one example was I I went to a a party at a neighbor's house. They were having a barbecue like the neighbors have a great relationship with the neighbors. I don't know what happened in, in that situation, but within the first 10 minutes, I was like, I got to get the hell out of here. Like, this is something is wrong. And I freaked out and I left and everybody was just kind of standing there like, what's happening? Why are you freaking out? Uh, so it's just an interesting thing to think about and, and something that I deal with on a daily basis, you know, that, that kind of long lasting impact that this person has had on my psyche. Well, and especially for you, I mean, because your mom had a life before him. So she knew what life as an adult was like before this person, you at six years old, I mean, your world is just being shaped and it is confusing as hell with all these, these messages you're getting, these threats you're getting, the love that's being shown, you know, the charmingness and, you know, another tactic of his, when you say like, we would go watch TV and he was so cool and showing me attention and really fun. And that was the love bombing of you, of course, but uh, what what a way for your world to be shaped at that age to then have to navigate the rest of your life. Um, well, the, the task becomes, as an adult, deconstructing all of that damage. Because like Shiloh's saying, the love bombing you're getting while you're having that intimate moment with this guy is then juxtaposed against him lining you up military regiment style and saying, I'm, I will kill you. You know, if you, what's the lie, tell me the lie, make it convincing. And if you, that, that has long-term damage on a kid. I mean, you, it's, it's amazing how resilient we are as humans. The fact that we survive at all is kind of crazy, but the, the resiliency is sort of built into the majority of our population that I don't know if everybody remembers, I'm I'm so old. There was a toy when I was growing up called Weebles and they were like sort of pre-Lego little wooden egg-shaped people. And the the tagline was Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down because they always would kind of revert back to their baseline. And as humans, we have the ability to do that. But if you really want to mess a kid up is you give them mixed, consistently mixed messages. And that is you know, that can lay a groundwork for what you're saying, exactly what you experienced was you had some unknown combination of triggers 
And maybe it was the music, maybe it was the music and the food, maybe it was the music and the lights and something you heard, but didn't realize you heard that then sends you into that sort of, uh, complete adrenaline and cortisol flush into your body. And the great thing is, is that what we know now about treatment is that we can destruct those, deconstruct those things, but it takes time. And the important thing to remember is that in that process of deconstructing is it's your personal process of healing. It is not about trying to figure out why they did it. Whenever we right. try and figure out other people's motives, you are taking a taxi into crazy town. Like that just doesn't make any sense. Stay in your part of town where you know the streets and you know the avenues and I'm comfortable here. I am not going to drive over to crazy town and try and negotiate that geography when I don't know. I don't know it. That was one of the most important lessons. <laughs> you don't need to know. It. It's not, it's not going to be purposeful for you. So some very wise person told me one time that you can't make sense out of crazy. So don't try. Right. And, and that helps. <laughs> that helps a lot. <laughs> but, but there is, but we are drawn to wanting to, we yes. want it to make sense. And mm -hmm. Um, and it, there, that needs to be part of our coping skill is when we are drawn to, I just want to know why she did it. I just want to know why he did it mm -hmm. to, to gently reparent ourselves in a very compassionate and loving way and say, it doesn't matter why they did it. It matters that you're hurting. And when you say you, you're parenting yourself, it matters that I'm hurting and I can take care of this and I'm going to find my own way. And it comes from a place of not wanting it to repeat, right? We want to learn what went wrong and why they did it so that we don't fall for it again, whether it's being cheated on or, mm -hmm. you know, any sort of abuse that you experience. But I think what also is really powerful for you, Eric, is when your mom finally did, you know, the turning point for her, when she finally did, you know, obviously they weren't together anymore and then started demanding answers about Jacob's death. I think that could have been really empowering for you too to feel like that was just a, a new chapter finally. Like, okay, mom and I are aligned. We're healthy again. We we have a mission, um, which obviously you're carrying on um, to this day. But even as a, a, a child, you're still a mm -hmm. juvenile at that time, to see her um, gain her strength really helps in, you know, everything, you know, not undoing everything, but helping towards the healing. It, it definitely provided hope and a sense of the possibility of a future, you know, which is, is something that I did not have prior to that. You know, it, it was literally a day-to-day -day situation for me. I didn't know if I was going to be alive the next day. Um, so, mm -hmm. so seeing her do that, and, and get strong enough to fight back and to leave. That was a pivotal moment for me. And at the same time, my grandmother, she is one of those people that is not very warm and emotional um, because she didn't have that growing up, but she, she is very loving and she wants to, to be that even if it's hard for her. Um, but she pulled me aside because I was having a very hard time after we left. Um, I was very fearful. You know, I, I remember I wouldn't make eye contact with people. I yeah. would, I would, I would ask permission to use the restroom and then I would apologize because they would get mad at me for asking permission. Then they get mad at me for apologizing. Mm -hmm. And then I would apologize for, it was just like this crazy vicious cycle. Um, but my grandmother pulled me aside one day and she's like, look, I know, I don't know everything that happened to you, but I know that it was not good. But I want you to think about this, that you have 
you have a choice to make right now. You can just let this consume you and you can go down this road and it can just take over everything. Or you can make a choice to be better and to do better. And it's, it's a simple thing. And I know it's not easy for everybody, but that for me, that moment, I realized like I did have a choice. And how old were you? Um, I was probably 11. Okay. And someone's giving you the permission to do it too. Right. Saying, just saying it out loud is different. It is exactly. So you've got, now you've got not only witnessing your mom take advocacy and, and being efficacious for herself, she has volition to push back and make a, a motion. And so you witness that as a kid and go, oh, it's possible to push back. Those are all great. And then, you know, I think this was also really good timing that you also had another adult, trusted adult that could could give you an alternative. The only thing, and I say this with, with great love and compassion um, for you and for your family, is that we gotta be really careful about the words that we use with kids because the idea of choice is a hard thing actually for an adult to, to understand when you're under, under duress, because you may not be able to see that you have choices, even though you're told that you have choices. So, you know, just be, we all need to be cognizant of how we frame these things for kids. But I think the most important thing is that you had at least two solid adults that were there that you knew, like they had your back no matter what, but yeah. I, I, I was what I also wanted to say, like bef- before, I don't know if we'll be able to cover everything today, but, you know, if if everyone, anyone listening to this, I'm sure because they're interested in this genre and because they care about you, you, you need to understand the term of gaslighting because gaslighting is like one of the foundational tools that is used to keep people off balance in coercive control relationships and IPV, DV relationships. And gaslighting is... It's basically a manipulation technique of crazy making is to make your intended victim unsure of themselves, you know, to, to constantly undermine what that person is experiencing and expressing. So, you know, just for anyone who's listening, there's a great Wikipedia page on gaslighting. Go, go read it. It's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I, I missed some of what you said, but I, I got some of it about the gaslighting. Um, I apologize for, for my internet connection issues there. Oh, no worries. Um, so Lane asked a couple of questions here. Let's see. So she said, if possible, can you talk about how narcissistic abuse in particular can contribute to mental illness or even disordered behavior in children? And then as a follow-up to that, how would you recommend intervening to avoid full development of disordered personality disorder in teenage, in a teenager? That's a, that's a heavy question. Ooh, that's a lot. Um, I, I would say I, that's, that's a lot. What I can, what I can cover is that, uh, whatever interventions that you can make, and that that's a big question about what interventions are appropriate because it all depends on, on the particular case. But what is really important to know is that narcissistic abuse or having a parent that is personality disordered or abusive, you know, unfortunately can result in the development of personality disorder traits as a coping skill in kids. So, you know, a narcissist 
can actually breed a narcissist, you know, because they act in a narcissistic way. And so the, the, the child starts to defend themselves in that particular way. So yeah, that, those kind of things can happen. Um, there's also, there's a great book called, uh, children of the self-involved, um, which is a great book about, uh, children who grow up in a narcissistic household and how that can impact them. And as far as interventions, you know, it's about getting into therapy and, you know, helping the individual develop a sense of self that is permeable. You know, it's like a solid sense of self, but it's not, not so defended that it becomes, uh, you know, just a, 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 an urn for these, uh, narcissistic traits. It's a big question. And that we could, we could probably do a six part series just on that. <laughs> um, it looks like Dr. Shiloh had some internet issues too. So she refreshed, hopefully she'll be back in here in a second. Um, Kim, in the last few minutes that we have here, we've got about 12 minutes left. Um, and if you have any other questions, anybody who's watching, feel free to, to throw them in the chat. Um, but Dr. Scott, can we talk about why it's so difficult for a victim to leave their abuser? Yeah. So yeah, it's a great question. Um, and it's one of those things that's a trope. And thankfully, I mean, it's also been taken care of in, in many ways, like in law, many law and order episodes. Well, why didn't she leave? Uh, why didn't he leave? And I, I, I like to say that too, because that is an un, that is an unrealized and unvisualized epidemic in the US well, or and around the world too of men who are victims of female perpetrated intimate partner violence. So much so that we don't even have the correct numbers because men don't come forward to re to share this. But one of the things that um, that makes it so difficult is that I want to loop back around to a point I made earlier that in Western culture and, and even other parts of the world, we have this myth of romantic love and what that is supposed to represent of this sort of fairy tale view of relationships. And as most of us know, that's not what real relationships are about. And actually, prior to the advent of this idea of romantic love, marriages were to keep the tribe alive. <laughs> They were to, they they weren't about like you know marrying the, the your soulmate. It was about marrying somebody that's going to have enough kids that you can work your farm. You know, there's a, there's a whole underpinning that's been going on for thousands of years, and unfortunately, that is dovetailed with patriarchal systems that have been you know prom promoting male heteronormative role models and gender roles. So you know, this is to say that they can't like I said, that these can't happen in same sex relationships because they can, but there is a result of sort of these um, gender roles that we have. So myths like things might just, just work it out, you know, be a good wife, be a good wife, a mother, a girlfriend, which unfortunately is a lot of the time what you get from pastoral counseling. So when people go to their minister, their priest, uh, and it's like, well, yeah, he's, he's beating the shit out of you, but you know, maybe you guys can work this out. And one of the things that we do as mental health clinicians, and I'm also a licensed MFT is that if we see, if there has been any incidents of violence in the relationship, it is not time for couples counseling because couples counseling can actually make it worse. It's, it's more about like, no, these two things have to separate. This person needs to go get their work on the, their propensity towards violence. And this person needs to go, to get their trauma uh, 
their trauma response examined. But, you know, how people stay in it is that, that, that violence cycle and that coercive control cycle is engineered to separate the victim or potential victim from their support system. So they are slowly isolated from the friends, the family members, from anybody that is actually outside that emotional and very toxic bubble or echo chamber that the perpetrator has created. So, and as it goes on, well, you know, I know you have a, a good job and everything, but I think you should stay home and take care of the kids and I'll work. So then you cut off the financial support that this individual has, and they are not able to even really realistically come to a place where they can pack up all the kids and a suitcase and get to a hotel or to a shelter. They just don't have that option, right? So it can be that they are, they don't leave because they don't see any chance for their real escape. They could be pushed into a place of hopelessness and helplessness and they can't see their options that are available to them. And then there's also a really awful thing that happens with people of long-term abuse and manipulation is you start to get brain fog. You actually start to have altered cognitive ability. And you can have the most brilliant person in the world who's the sharpest knife in the drawer. And yet after months or years of abuse and isolation and all of these manipulative factors, they are not able to actually figure their way out in the way that they would have prior to this. So they get convinced that they can't leave because the cycle of violence and course of control constantly keeps them off balance. And if we have time, I have another crazy analogy. I call it the Dorito analogy. So a lot of people don't understand about how snack foods and junk foods are made in the US and how, you know, there are literally labs developed to develop new flavors. But the other thing that they do is that they, the flavor profiles are created with a combination of sodium or salt and sugar, because understanding those two different taste processes in our mouths messes with our brain. So a Dorito, a nacho, nacho Doritos is designed to have equal amounts of sugar, even though you don't, you don't know that you're eating sugar, there's sugar in that salt. So your brain is constantly trying to figure out, is it sweet? Is it salty? Is it sweet? Is it salty? So you eat more to figure it out. And I find, and I'm sorry, I'll probably be pilloried in the public about this, but I find that in a violent relationship that can be they're sweet and salty. You're constantly being thrown off balance and your brain can't make sense of it. Well, he's being nice now, or she's being nice now. Oh, and then you start making they, Oh, but he was not nice now, but he was nice before. So I've got to make excuses so that I can maintain this cycle. So I apologize for the Doritos analogy. I don't know if that actually works as a dovetail. I love that I leave for five minutes. And I come back and you've gone totally off the rails, Scott. I cannot leave him alone for anything. <laughs> it's so true. Oh my God, it's so true. So uh, I, I do understand what you're saying. With the, uh, First of all, I love Doritos. Um, you too. <laughs> they're so good, especially you, you may not have that in, in LA, but we have green chili dip here in New Mexico and oh. Doritos with a green chili dip. It's like, it's heaven. Uh, it, it is why I gained... 25 pounds at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, I've lost it now, but comfort food. <laughs> but it definitely made me feel good. Um, 
so we have a couple of, we have a question here. Do you feel like it, it is a good idea to get involved when you see somebody uh, developing towards an abusive relationship? In other words, like a friend, uh, a family member, or is it better to just keep your mouth closed so that they can reach out when they're ready without fear of judgment? Well, they're going to need to know that you're part of their social support system. So um, I, I definitely wouldn't say don't do anything and just wait for them to come to you because that's really, really hard with the shame that's associated with it when it does come to that spot. Um, I, I, I'm guessing with, you know, even the person asking this question knows that they w wouldn't be able to stand by and do nothing. And, and I don't think many friends of friends would say nothing if you care about them. Um, but definitely it can be a challenge, right? Especially if someone in this, the cycle that we're talking about and they're, they're in the, the sugar stage of the analogy, I don't know, um, <laughs> where things are really good. They can be like, what are you talking about? What are you picking up on? Um, and just consistently not pushy, but being there, letting them know what you're saying that maybe they're not saying, and I'm here when you need me, I'm here for your support. I'm not here to judge it. I, I just want to completely back up what Shiloh was saying is you, you walk a fine line and I had, you know, I've been in this position myself, uh, when, when people are splitting up for various reasons and there's a, sometimes there's, you know, it's very clear that, you know, you just want to be supportive. And then there, there are sometimes where it's like, wait, wait, something else is going on, but you do still have to be careful because, if you can stay away from there's first of all, if there's violence and there's clear violence, then there doesn't really need to be a processing discussion. It's about like, I'm part of your support system. Like Shada was saying, I'm part of your support system. How do we keep you safe? Everything else is secondary. I don't need to know all the drama. I don't need to know. I, I know you're hurting. How can we keep you safe? I need to keep you safe. And beyond that, you have to be really careful because if it's not overt violence and if it's not overt manipulation, but you need to be really careful because relationships are not going to immediately, you, you need to divest yourself of the idea that you can be the white knight that goes in and rescues this relationship. Because what you can do is inadvertently triangulate and mess the system up even more because this person you're trying to help may actually not be done with their version of the cycle. So they go back into the sugar stage and now they're pissed off at you because you were on the other side during the salt stage going, your partner's a piece of shit and you need to get out of there. So that defense mechanism is going to rise and might push you out of it when all you wanted to do was help. So it is really difficult. You need to be very judicious about how you maneuver through that particular part of a relationship, even if you're just trying to be helpful. Yeah. I think that's really good advice. And yeah, just letting somebody know that you are there because there is that, that feeling of isolation that, that comes out of this whole process and whether or not, you know, the person believes you when they, when you tell them that, that constant reassurance, I think goes a long way because when they are ready, they know that there's somebody there waiting for them to help them. And, and I think that's a beautiful and really important thing. I am so, so grateful to both of you. This conversation was so much more than, than uh, I expected and so much better than I expected. Um, I'm so, so, so grateful for you. Um, any, any closing thoughts before we wrap up here? 
I just think our conversation and meeting today was a long time in the making, and I'm so glad that it worked out to where it landed on today. I'm really grateful for you having us be a part of today, and I I think your your effort and your determination is not going to go unfulfilled. Something something is some peace is going to be brought to your family in one way or another that has just been a void that's been there for a long time. So um, thank you for letting us, you know, lend a little bit of information to your listeners. And um, yeah, we just wish you all the luck and keep us in the loop, please. I, I just feel really honored on this particular day to be able to talk to you. So thank you for giving us this opportunity and and to echo what Shiloh says. I, I think this is this is opening a new chapter that's going to to really make some movement. That's I'm going to knock on wood when I say that. I, I'm I'm hoping that that's what happens. Well, um, no matter what happens, you know, it, it's forever. Jacob is going to have a legacy on the world because I am going to make sure that that happens. And whatever that looks like, you know, it may not be a trial that results in the arrest of the person responsible, but uh, I know that there's a lot that can be done to, to help, you know, others. And, and I think this was, was one of those things that can be done to help people understand, you know, the complications related to domestic violence and intimate partner violence, but also the things to look out for. And so I, I am forever grateful for, for all of you, for both of you and, and for all the listeners and for everybody who's helped. Um, I do need to say thank you to everybody who called the DA, who emailed the DA, who signed the petition, uh, you all have made a huge, huge impact, um, not only on the case, but on my mom and, and on me. And I talked to my mom this morning, you know, and I, and I said, I, I know that it's a hard day for, for us, but I hope that you have some peace knowing that there are thousands of people that have our back yeah. around the world. And that's amazing. It's amazing. It really is. Let us know whatever you need, Eric. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. So with that, I'm going to say goodbye to all of you that are watching. Um, thank you so much for, for your support. Thanks for listening and stay safe, New Mexico.
sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye folks.